0: Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar Audiobook Podcast. Previously on Echelon, Paul caught his murderer and Nathan found Tashiro, who began to uncover the strange truth about Maybar. And now chapter 5 of Echelon. There is a lot you think you know about the world that is very, very wrong. But not everything is wrong, said the powerful dark skinned man with horns coming out of his forehead. I will be your instructor, and I will bring clarity to all that. So push every worry far from your mind. Paul's head bobbed a nod. He stood on a dock out in a ritzy marina along the Lutinia coastline facing a comically long yacht of polished ebony that happened to have one of those heavy docking rings in the front, the kind all of the flying boats in Pan had, but this one had the look of a tarnished ring in the nose of a fighting bull. Aleph Dominique Ramirez, or according to Shackleton, former seated Ramirez, or training commandant Ramirez, or hero of the Prometheus Praved Revolt, Colonel Ramirez, was standing on the back of a little boat he had taken from the yacht to the dock where Paul stood. He had one hand on his hip, one on the boat tiller, one foot up on the gunwale. Ramirez struck a noble pose, very intentional looking, which only made him seem excessively strange. And Paul had met many strange people in the last year. The big man had a straw hat on, but his horns just poked through two holes in the brim. They did nothing to hide how odd he looked. Even if someone assumed the horns were part of the hat, his fangs showed proud on his closed mouth. Paul wondered why this guy wasn't more self-conscious being out in the open in a place like Lutinia, which didn't even believe Pravis existed, let alone beastmen. All the rest of his sharp teeth showed as he smiled at Paul's confusion. How was it, taking down that killer? Paul frowned. Frustrating. I understand it was kind of a test, but it would have gone better if I'd had some help. Like qualified help, not the city police. Ramirez laughed, the sound rich and loud. Paul looked around, self-conscious, on behalf of the man, hoping no one would see him. Ramirez shook his head and locked kind eyes onto Paul. Then why didn't you ask for help? Paul drew in a breath and looked at the floor. I did, but not until I knew there were two of them. I guess I assumed doing it alone was part of the test. Uh, I, at least I did until it was too dangerous and I didn't care about that anymore. Ramirez's eyes twinkled as he tapped the side of his nose. Lesson learned well. The first of many. They told you to meet me here right after they took in the killer's accomplice? Paul tried to not wince every time the guy spoke in his booming, lofty tone. They, uh, said you used to be one of the seated for Hale? Yes. He clasped his hands together behind his back and took a step from the boat onto the dock next to Paul. Just recently ended my last term. Decided to return to teaching, which has always been my truest passion. They said you would... Brief me on my training. It's six months, right? Ramirez nodded. Packed schedule. No time wasted. I'll give you one week to get ready to go, say goodbye to lovers, maybe marry your favorite to try and encourage her to wait for you while you're gone. Not that women will ever be a problem for you from now on. Paul felt blood rushing south. Things had been going well with Susie, and he had been planning on asking her about marriage soon. But having this strange man put it all in his strange terms put an unnerving spin on it. Suddenly six months away from Susie sounded like it might be much longer than he'd originally felt it would be. The one week he had left to spend with her became brief. Ramirez squinted an eye. Do you celebrate the Equinox masquerade? It's in four days, but your file says that you're a follower of seven. So I wasn't sure if you did or not. Paul felt like an idiot. That was why Ramirez didn't care about having his horns visible. Everyone would just think he was testing out an elaborate getup for the Spring Equinox Festival. Usually, no. It often overlaps with Passover. And I've had jobs where they'd make me work on the festival days because I was taking time off for Passover right before or after. Pity. Ramirez pulled out a small black envelope from his jacket and reached out to hand it to Paul. He took it from the huge clawed hand. It was sealed with gray wax saturated with flecks of metal dust. The seal was the head of a bowl. On the front was written, Paul Stevens, in silver leaf embossing. As Paul examined it, Ramirez spoke with a lower voice, which was still booming. I am hosting an equinox party for some of my friends here in town. You are most welcome to come, young Mr. Stevens, and to bring along someone you cherish, if you wish, or someone you want to impress, or come alone. There will be plenty of lovely, attractive women here. So either way, I guarantee you will have a delightful time. But I will not be offended if you cannot attend because of your convictions. Paul looked up at him. Ramirez was leaning down toward him. It had been a while since Paul had been around someone who made him feel physically small. Again, the hornman man lowered his voice, and again it was still thundering and clear. Without convictions, we are all animals, or worse. So, wait. Nathan's head hurt. He had his hand held out, pointing at the suit body hanging from the ceiling, which hung down from the great bridge of cables, wider than a freeway overpass, running between the peaks of the mighty structures of the Assassin and the Worldcan. Everyone is inside the mini-Assassin in her chest? Shiro folded his robotic arms identical to the limp ones of the hanging body, and paced toward Bosco. His helmeted head looked down as if examining the floor. Bosco watched him carefully, giving a wide berth. Then Shiro shrugged. I don't know. But you just said... Nathan sighed. What's going on? Ursi says that Maybar isn't a computer simulation anymore. That it's an actual universe... Now you say that Maybar is inside this suit. Shiro's arms relaxed. He turned to Nathan and made a motion as if he was drawing in a large breath and letting it out slowly. I will just tell you what I saw. Only Ursi can tell you how it all happened. <sighs> Son of a... Nathan paced off away from him, throwing his hands up in the air. Why is everyone putting me on this damned runaround? Ursi wakes me up, tells me nothing. I go to Karini. She says Ursi knows what's going on, so I ask Ursi. Ursi says that the universe is a universe now, not a video game, but that you know the truth about why. Then I come to you and you say that only Ursi knows the why. The hell is going on, Shiro? Shiro laughed and spoke in a calming fatherly voice. It was annoying, almost condescending, but Nathan was too hungry for answers to bother being offended. You feel like someone's playing games with you, and I believe Ursie is. But maybe in a good way. She sees things very differently than us. Maybe my story will help you put together some better questions for her. I think if you ask the right questions, you'll learn what you need to know. Ha! Nathan ran his hands through his hair, pulling on it in frustration. Karini said the same thing. Has no one figured out the right question to ask her yet? Shira went over to his workbench and opened a wooden case that was filled with small glass vials. He pulled one out, then put it in a weird cast iron device with a long lever on the side. He pulled a roll of very narrow paper from a drawer, attached it to a spindle on top of the device, and pulled the lever. Nathan had no idea how this thing worked, so he was a bit apprehensive as Shiro took the vial from the device, walked over, and held it to him, and now had a faint crimson fluid in it. Well, have already drank one unlabeled beverage from you today. What's another? Oh, Shiro said, holding up a hand and looking around. Yes, just one moment. He turned around, and while still gingerly holding the vial in one hand, grabbed a folding chair with the other. He tried unfolding it with one foot while balancing on the other. Nathan finally got over being amused by this and helped him unfold the chair, which was a lawn chair that folded out almost flat. There was something odd about setting up a lawn chair in the gigantic dark cavern. Where did you even get this? That is a long story, but this is the easiest way to show you what happened. It's a sequence draft. Kind of a special pocket world potion. Oh, Nathan took the vial, looking at it closely. I haven't used one of these yet. Well, take a seat and relax. It won't be weird. Shiro gestured at the chair. Nathan grumbled and sat down on it, holding the vial. Then he swallowed it and lay on the chair. So how does it happen? Do I? Everything went black. Nathan was sort of weightless, sort of standing. It was confusing. He was relieved that he didn't feel any annoying euphoria or lightheadedness. He was fully in his right mind, but somehow sort of a disembodied observer. It was very weird. Then a slideshow started in front of him. A photo of a smiling, beautiful Japanese woman appeared in front of him, of someone he knew well. Shiro's voice echoed around him. Sharon became sick, the transition to entering Maybar being very bad on her system. She was one of the 5% of Earth-matured humans that adapted very poorly. Like me, Nathan mumbled, remembering the headaches and nausea he'd chronically lived with. He knew that Sharon's transition had been much, much worse than his, though. A photo appeared of a row of the robotic suits lined up in downloading bays, leaning up against a concrete wall. Each bay looked like an arched doorway. Shiro's voice continued. She thought coming out here, being in the robotic suit body, would help. It did not. A new photo of a bunch of cylindrical chambers lining the floor of a wide room appeared. Someone in a robot suit was looking at a bulky module attached to the head of one of the chambers. Panels opening up to allow access to the internals. That photo lingered for a bit as Shiro started again. We fell in love, but she was dying. And we never could get the gateway to build adult bodies, so it was hard. And short, but better than you might think. When she died, I sat by the big door leading down here for a very long time. You don't get hungry or tired in the same way while you're in one of these suits, so time doesn't move the same way. I would listen to the cycles of maintenance workers down below, getting into suit bodies, maintaining the assassin, world can, gateway, and nutrient cyclers for the gateway. But years passed, decades, centuries, I started counting the seconds between their visits. I could only hear their milling around from all the way up there, not what they were doing. None of them ever came up to visit me. I suppose they were afraid of me. And over time, their visits became less and less frequent. The photo left, leaving Nathan in darkness. Then, alarms everywhere. The reactor had failed, and the restart mechanism had failed as well. The solar panels on the surface that would have powered the restart cycle were covered in dust and foliage. No one had thought to go clean them off, and I learned all this later after someone turned off the alarms. Nathan suddenly found himself back in the main chamber, but not sitting on the lawn chair in the dark. The chamber was closer to what it had looked like When Bosco and him had first entered, and, leaning over Shiro's workbench and reading from a laptop, was someone in a robot suit. It was a young woman, who had made it into a suit body, just as the power had failed. Maybar went into a standby mode, running off batteries that were barely getting any power from the dirty solar panels. The assassin put everyone in stasis. But this woman had only partly gotten out before the standby. Her mind was half in the suit body, half in the sleeping universe of Maybar, Half in the sleepy comfort of the robot body, half in the nightmare of a frozen world. The robot suit, the woman Shiro was talking about, wandered from Shiro's bench to a large sheet of paper taped to the side of the world can looking over a huge flowchart of notes and codes. Nathan noticed that there was a cable running from her helmet and along the floor to some unseen terminal. It was very hard on her, and she had to keep her robot body hard-tethered to the machine at all times. Somehow, curiosity gave me strength to take the long stairway next to the elevator down to find her. But it took me a very... Very long time to get the motivation and then to find a battery to refill mine, which was terribly depleted. She was thrilled to see me, but she had suffered greatly. I can't confirm if she was right or not because neither of our perceptions of time were working well, but she said she had been down there trapped between worlds for two years. She sent me off to clean the solar panels. I had to take many batteries up with me and that took a long time. When I was finally done, I came down and she said I had been gone for four years. She was very upset. I felt very guilty but I also was very confused because I had spent most of my time out in the sun. The real sun. Our sun. So I was able to count the days. It had only taken me four days, though I'd didn't know how long it had taken me to get the batteries to go up and down the stairs. Probably not four years, Nathan said to himself, since he figured this was a pre-recorded thing. I'm going to have to ask Shiro how they could let everything fall into so much disrepair. But then the recording seemed to anticipate the question and answered it. Mankind had forgotten the struggle that survival required. They were lazy. They had eliminated hunger, poverty, sickness, and in some ways, loneliness. No needs, no want. No struggle. So they became fat and stupid. Ha! Nathan said during a dramatic pause. But the real problem was that they'd also eliminated conflict. But that's a story for another time. What? No! Nathan said. I want to know about that! The chamber and the woman in the robot suit sitting in front of a laptop returned in front of Nathan. She was reading from a thick book now. The engineer that had half-escaped Maybar to try and save all of humanity was Ifi Onweume. But she was not the same brilliant woman she had been. While I had been on the surface, seeing the sun again for the first time in four centuries, She had buried herself in ancient books. She said something about weaving together the fabric of reality with the power of computer simulation. I was the lead of the team that perfected the hardware architecture for the assassin, so I found her rantings about this ridiculous. I had spent decades building a computer system that could emulate the chemical neural network of the human brain, running into endless problems of mechanics and mathematics every step of the way and never getting close to the elegance of the human brain. Nathan knew about this. Also, being part of the 5% of poor adapters, it was partly why he was so passionate about making sure we would leave. Hey, that's me, Nathan said, yawning as he listened. The visual part of the recording was still just Onwayumi sitting in front of the workbench reading a book. Shiro might be a genius inventor, but he was terrible at making AV presentations. Shiro's voice stuck on more passion. Because the assassin is garbage, just a pathetic facsimile of the divinity found in that three pounds of flesh, and no one was ever fooled anyway. It was always just good enough. Forty years of my life with the best brains at my disposal, riding on the backs of giants in computer science and neuroscience. And it was never more than just barely good enough. I was amused and offended by the glory Onwayumi placed on Maybar. She was a child who had never known what the real world was like. The computer code that built her reality was elegant magic to her. So she had tried to find a way to make that magic intersect with the real world. Absolute nonsense. Finally, the scene changed. Onwayume had gathered a bunch of hardware and cables into the space between the assassin and the world can. She hunched over a large device with huge cable connection points all over it. When I told her the solar panels were cleaned, and that the batteries were all recharging rapidly, she turned on all the lights and began building something. She would mutter to herself, moving quickly, tripping over her own tether and often damaging her suit. When I would force her to stop so I could repair her body, she would fidget and mumble about. If he would wait for her, she would never tell me who was waiting for her. She built this interface you see here, hanging from the ceiling, attached to the main bus. As she then attached it to new interfaces she had added to her suit body, when she knew I wasn't watching her, I demanded she stop. I didn't know what she was doing, but I knew it was bad. Again, everything went black. Shiro went silent a moment, but then appeared as the black and white samurai standing in the darkness. She did not tell me who was waiting for her, but she said more than she realized when she muttered. She had made deals with demons, spirits of nature and creation. Shiro vanished and the scene was replaced with Anwayume standing there with the cables snaking through the gap between her helmet and her neck. She had to be careful as she transitioned from being connected to Maybar by her tether to being connected by this new interface she was building. I tried to stop her from this, but she would threaten to rip both of them free of her and destroy herself. She'd laugh at me when I would back away. She would call me a coward. When she was done connecting to the new interface, she said, Shiro, I have made special dispensations for you. You will forever guard me, and he will heal your mind and keep the madness from ever touching you. I was confused because I had not heard of the terrible things that had happened to the other Ta, who had lived out their long lives within Maybar. Something about spending so many decades sitting in a sort of meditation in the suit body must have preserved my mind. I do not know. She activated her interface, and at first I was horrified. The assassin and the world can went dark and silent immediately, and Don Weyume screamed out and collapsed into the place you see before you. And I froze and have not moved since. Nathan was now back in the chamber, as if the recording was over, but Bosco and Shiro were gone. All that was here was Anwayume's suit, hanging from the ceiling, just with no cobwebs. I thought I had let her kill everyone. I thought I would now be alone, forever, trapped and frozen, to have only my shame as a companion. Shiro reappeared, looking down at Anwayume. But I was wrong. Moments later, I found that I was in two places. Well, now I'm technically in three places because monitor is no longer a true monitor of Earth. I am frozen on Earth. I am here on this fake monitor, and I am in the hidden doorway back to Earth. Hey everybody, how are your holidays going? I love you all so much for listening. It is the greatest gift you could give me, especially those 10 of you who are regular listeners and the possibly many more that come to this later on in the future after I win that award for that thing that I may do someday. It could happen. I wanted to throw out a quick thanks to my friend Ken Dickison. Because a million years ago, we were chatting over Facebook Messenger and he helped me figure out these mechanics to the transformation of Maybar that you're learning a little bit about right now. Even though I mentioned this to him once and he has no memory of our conversation. But I do strongly suggest you check out Ken's cooking channel on YouTube called Celt Can Cook, where he plays a psychotic Scotsman who shows you how to prepare delicious meals. So do that. Look up Celt Can Cook on YouTube immediately. Also, do not worry. There are still many more secrets in the hopper to be revealed about Maybar. Echelon is written and produced by me, Andy Wright. You can follow me at A. William Wright, mostly on Instagram. Unless you're in the future when Instagram is destroyed, along with all Facebook, by whoever rises up to defeat them. All music is from the album Into the Dark by the band The Restitution. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is hosted by the folks over at Anchor.fm. Chapter 6 will be out next year on January 4th. Now, let's get back to the story. Nathan woke up, staring up at the cable-filled ceiling, the ceiling of the illusion of the chamber, as it was when he and Bosco had first entered. His ears were again inundated in the multitude of hums coming from all directions and in dozens of tones. But he was still laying on the long chair. It was confusing. He turned to see Shiro, man in black and white robes Shiro, not robot suit Shiro, looking down at him, and then he looked at Bosco standing off to the side. Cheerful dumb robots puttered about their duties off in the distance. Wait, hidden? Nathan stood up. Did they move the exit out of threshold? You mean the doorway to Earth? Of course I mean the doorway to Earth. That's the last thing you mentioned in the recording. Shiro, his arms folded, puffed out his chest and looked down. Well, there's good news and bad news. First, I've realized more things since I first created that sequence draft. Technically, I can't leave this room, but Tanaka gave me some gadgets to help me bend the rules. I tried to find the doorway, but I couldn't. Ursi stopped me. Ursi? Nathan's eyes narrowed. I believe that she is still in league with the demons of creation that gave her the power to change Maybar, And I believe she hid the doorway, but that's only part of the bad news. Nathan considered this. He was not ready to believe in demons of creation right now, but there were other problems. What's the whole of the bad news, then? Shiro's brows furrowed. The time problem? I'm still frozen on Earth. Onweumi is still suspended like you saw. I believe time is frozen, relative to us. Nathan felt a stomach muscle cramp. Relative to us? I believe. Shiro now looked embarrassed. This Well, this is my theory sounds silly, but I believe it is true. We are, all of Maybar is, existing in the split second between two moments. The first, when Anwayume absorbed the worlds of Maybar, and every living thing within it, into her soul. The second moment, when Anwayume's mind and soul will be destroyed by this impossible thing. That is why Anwayume hides the door. Because if someone can go through it, She will die. Nathan smiled. So, Maybar is now Anwayome's Jacob Ladder dream? That's what you're saying? I do not know that reference. Shiro turned away. And it's from a movie. Nathan stuffed his hands in his pockets and paste. I actually haven't seen it. I just know what it's about. Either way, I really hope you're wrong. Shiro's expression brightened. There is the good news, though. Oh? Shiro held up a finger. I believe that you will be able to enter Earth in the body you have right now, if you can find that doorway. Nathan's cynicism toward all of this fantastical theorizing left him wary of this new hope. How? Onwayumi did something. Maybe she really did find a way to weave the laws of reality together with the laws of Maybar. part of her deal with the creative demons she bartered with. But there is a problem with the time difference. The end of the dream dilemma. Hmm, Bosco said, having been listening. The moment one person leaves Maybar, it will burn out its whole timeline of possible existence, and everyone else will be dead. More they will live out their lifetimes and possible countless following generations of lifetimes for however long that all takes. Bosco grumbled. That's exactly what I just said. Which means, Nathan said, we just have to get everyone out at the exact same moment. Build a teleporting ship big enough to jump everyone out, like we jumped here in Jin's house. Frustration knotted up in Nathan's stomach. What's the next thing I should do? Ursi may stay away from me forever now that I know enough to ask the right questions. Or she may just lie. Especially if she's in league with a band of creative demons. Which makes it sound like there's musical theater in hell. Who else should I try and talk to? Tanaka? What's the next step in my quest to rescue humanity from Maybar? Excuse me, sirs. It was Bosco. I do not mean to disrespect Toshiro, but he did say that much of what he stated are theories. It may not be likely that... The good news is true and the bad news is false. But it is possible. Nathan smiled at Bosco's tactfulness. He felt that most of what Shira was saying was completely bonkers, but some of it might be true. But whatever Nathan could parse out from this conversation, he didn't feel any more ready to form a true plan of action than he did before. (sighs) The more I learn, the more confused I am. Boom! The sound came from the elevator where they'd come down. Bosco drew his pistol. Sir, we should leave now. Damn it. I always have too many questions and too little time. Nathan pulled the teleportation stone out of a pocket and was about to throw it. Wait, wait, wait! Shiro held out a hand to stop Nathan. That will not work here. What? Nathan's arms went limp. Why? This is a sacred place teleportation isn't allowed here. We can't even draw a door to threshold on the wall. Well, that sucks. Well, Shiro's voice became more cheery. I do have an idea that may solve both of your problems. The problems of getting out of here and of needing to talk to me more, I mean. Shiro went over to his workbench and opened drawers and dug through them. His expression became more and more frustrated as he went from drawer to drawer. Then he went through all of them all over again. Um, Nathan said just as Shiro took one drawer out whole and dumped all its contents on the floor. What are you looking for? Shiro shook his head. I thought I had a sheet of DC paper in here. It looks like I'm out. The damned assembly controls all of them now, blocking all access to the press. I have one. Nathan knelt down and untied his shoe. Shiro's eyes widened. You do? Oh, that's wonderful. Nathan took it out from under the shoe insole. Shiro snatched it and ran over to the rows of bookshelves. The shelves had a plethora of stacked and piled up papers and binders and books and old laptops and half-finished gadgets with knobs and hoses spouting out of them. Shiro found a binder and made a low grunt in Japanese. He chuckled to himself as he pulled it out of the shelf and brought it over to slam down in a clear spot on his workbench. He opened it to a particular page and shoved over some glass beakers and random metal contraptions, all of them clanking loudly against each other, but none falling off the side to make a clear spot to spread out the DC paper flat. Let's see. I need an item for your robot to wear. Nathan's eyebrows shot up. You could use the pen. Nathan came over to remove the bright red and green pin from Bosco's chest holster, but Bosco held up a hand. Please, sir. It would give me no greater pleasure than to remove it myself. Bosco delicately removed the back cover of the pin and pulled it out of his holster, put the cover back on, and handed it over to Shiro. Shiro smiled and set it down on the binder, pretty side down. He took a little engraver tool from a cup holding a couple dozen different slender tools turned it on to have a high-pitched whine join the humming of the room, and carefully engraved a number into the brass of the back of the pin. Above them, there were more sounds of boomings and crackings and bangings. Nathan's knees bent as he looked up at the sounds echoing through the chamber. This is taking a while. Shiro shook his head but did not look up from his work. Illusions. They will not come down here. How do you know? Shiro laughed. I never gave up my seat, and I was still designated an oasis for myself. This is my realm, the holiest of hallowed ground, all that. I am the terror and a nightmare of the past that guards it. I am the living Buddha that shields it with my aura. The Masyoshigamis will not risk coming down here without my explicit permission. Nathan nodded. So they're trying to scare us out? Or to surrender. Shiro's back straightened and he set the pen to the side. He opened a drawer and pulled out a maroon aleph pen and took the cap off. He went to work carefully writing instructions on the creased and crumpled piece of DC paper from Nathan's shoe. He took his time, as if writing the paragraphs out was a holy task. He was about to sign it, but stopped. He turned to Nathan. You should sign it. It may work better that way. In what way? I don't even know what you're doing. Shiro shrugged. Uh, Cleaner variable declarations. Nathan sighed and stepped over to sign his name. Never mind. You all know the way to get me to shut up and just comply was to throw programming jargon at me. He and Shiro were technically the two most powerful people in Maybar, so it probably didn't matter which of them signed it. Still, he had to trust and defer to Shiro on something like this. Shiro held up the DC paper and blew on the ink, as if that was necessary, as if he was even capable of blowing a breath. He then put it on the back of the binder, where there were two other sheets that looked very similar, and stuffed the binder back into the bookshelf. He picked up the pin and handed it to Bosco, who sighed as he put it back on his holster. Bosco then looked at Nathan, who looked back at him. "'Well,' Nathan said, "'do you feel any different?' You two should be getting along. Shiro smiled and handed Nathan his Aleph pen. Oh, also take this. You can use it once you steal one of their ships so you can teleport out of here. Since you seem to be missing your pen, Nathan. Nathan had finally stopped cringing every time one of the fake noises sounded around him during their ascent. The hallways had been empty. The mall had been empty. The elevator had been empty. It could be that now, as Nathan and Bosco stood in the elevator, slowly going up, he wasn't cringing with each noise anymore because his body was in a constant state of shivering. He knew the noises were fake. Just a trick. He was still deeply unsettled. Not by the noises, but by his imagination trying to figure out what other kinds of magical tricks they had up their sleeves. If they could make sounds appear out of thin air, could they make monsters appear out of thin air? Or make illusionary duplicates of themselves? Not that he and Bosco had a chance of finding them all off anyway, even if they didn't use clever tricks. Their only chance was to get outside of Shiro's holy magic anti-teleportation field, so that he could use his teleportation stone to get out of here. The pleasant bell of the elevator, indicating they'd reached the top, cut through the intermittent thunder from above. Nathan and Bosco walked out and headed through the upper maze toward the surface. Bosco spoke, his voice flat. Does his pen do something special? Nathan held up Sheryl's worn and dirty Aleph key. Bosco gestured at it. There's an extra button on it. Nathan looked more closely. Huh, it does. I have a feeling it does something useful. Otherwise, he would not have told us to try and steal a ship. He knows we are incapable of such an action. Maybe, or he's just old and nuts. Bosco didn't respond to that. Soon they were back in the chamber with the statues of the Taw, with the winding staircase going to the surface. Shiro's statue looked extra odd and inaccurate now. That smiling, smart face didn't really exist anymore. Nathan felt sick as they went up the stairs. He heard the whistle of wind and the thumping of blood in his ears. His fingers tingled and went warm, and his entire body turned more rubbery with every step up the spiral. He'd slept for 800 years, and this was the second time he'd made a stupid mistake. The first was... Getting caught by Aleph Dan. Now he was trapped in a temple of worship directed at him and his associates. He stopped on the stairway. Bosco continued just two more steps, then turned around. Nathan pointed upward. Here, I'll go up and put my hands up. Then you jump out and attack, I guess. Maybe you'll be able to take a few of them out before they figure out what's happening. Bosco nodded and drew both his machete and his huge chest gun. Good idea, sir. They continued up, then stopped just before the sky came into view around the curve of the stairway. Bosco was about to mash his thumb down on the button of his machete, but stopped. His posture changed. His back and neck straightened out, and he looked down at his arms and legs, as if surprised by them. Nice. His voice was wrong. This one is way better than the one Tanaka sent me. Nathan's eyes narrowed. Uh, Bosco, what's going on? Bosco tossed his gun to Nathan, who almost dropped the huge thing. Then Bosco reached out a hand toward Nathan. Can I have my pen back, please? Nathan looked down at his hands, then up at Bosco's face. Shiro? Shiro tapped the pin of the red flower on the strap. This is how I can leave. Don't worry. Bosco's fine. I'll take care of his body. This will let me pop in from time to time to help you guys out. But can I have my pen? Nathan hesitated a second, then dug into a pocket and handed the pen back. What are you going to do? Shiro started up the stairs. You may want to stay down here. They carefully moved up the last bit of the stairway, seeing the feet of those waiting for them. Nathan could see four people, plus behind them an angular, bulky ship, its nose pointed right at the opening in the stairway. There was no noise but the whistle of hot wind. Shiro walked up the rest of the way, standing tall and arrogant, looking down his nose at those surrounding him. Where is Tar Sanchez? Called out one of them. Shiro had Bosco's machete in one hand and his pen in the other. None of your concern. You insult him by sending deputies to take him in. There are only two of the Tar that you have not subdued. And he is one of them. At that, Shiro pressed the button on the machete, making it flash into its wireframe form. One of the gammies chuckled. Well, this is new. What the hell kind of bodyguard robot has a rivet blade? Break it, called out the leader. Nathan, despite his fear, edged forward up the stairway so he could see what was happening better. He kept most of himself hidden behind the center pillar of the spiral staircase and hoped the darkness would hide the rest of him but he really wanted to know what was going on. One of the gammies lifted her hand, palm up, and a chunk of stone from the walkway broke off, flew into the air, and split into three pieces. The pieces spun in the air, then the spinning had a bit of a pattern to it, then they flew at Shiro, crumbling further into a sort of cloud of gravel. Shiro did not seem bothered at all. Halfway before getting to him, the gravel formed into two wings in the body of a hawk, But before it hit Shiro, he swung his wireframe sword at it. It happened fast. The bird turned into a glowing wireframe of itself that flew right through Shiro, right through Shiro, then into the ground and out of sight. The gami who'd sent the stone bird sighed, then lifted up both of her arms. Most of the floor behind her now rose up, rock and chunks of stone twisting together. They spun over her in a tornado five times her height, more and more stone adding to it from the walkway behind her. The stone ground together in a roar, wings and bodies forming rapidly into dozens of the stone birds. The kami gradually gestured at Shiro, and her stone nightmare all shot at him at high speed. Shiro turned just slightly at this, looking more directly at the oncoming attack. He pressed the button on the pen, and things started happening fast. From the pen... A huge wire sword appeared, like the one on Bosco's machete, but as long as he was tall and curved slightly and glowing red instead of blue-white. Extra lines along the length crisscrossed at random, like a chaotic spiderweb. Shiro swung the sword through the air, little more than a lazy gesture, and all of the stone birds popped. They turned into a mass of white-blue ribbons, as if they had turned into wireframes like the one before, but then those wireframes had completely lost their rigidity. They fell like cobwebs, covering Shiro and everyone else. But before the ribbons had landed, Shiro charged forward in the direction of the attacking Gammy. The blue glowing cobwebs dragged in the air behind him as he swung across, the sword cutting across the torso of both of the Gammy's on that side. They weren't cut in half. They didn't even show any sign of being cut. They looked down at themselves and collapsed to their knees, screaming. But Nathan didn't have time to watch them or wonder what was wrong, because Shiro had already turned around to charge at the other two. One held up a hand and shot some sort of blazing yellow beam of something at Shiro. But Shiro just deflected it with his big sword. Even though it was just a collection of glowing red lines, it still seemed to have a solid shape. Then as he neared that one, he spun around and slashed the Gami's leg with Bosco's sword. That leg turned into a wireframe, and he fell to the ground, grimacing in pain and clutching around where he'd been "quote unquote" cut. One guy left on the walkway, but over by the two that were on their knees, the floating ship tilted down to aim its guns at Shiro. Nathan jumped back deeper into the stairwell as the huge guns on the ship began firing. He held his hands over his ears and closed his eyes as everything around him began exploding and shaking, and people were screaming. He was swallowed up in the massiveness of the noise, but then it stopped. It was deadly silent, except for footfalls slowly getting louder. Sir, are you okay? Nathan stood back up and took his hands off of his ears, but didn't open his eyes right away. Is it over? Sure disabled all of them. Killed two of them, though I'm not sure how. Nathan opened his eyes and followed Bosco up the stairs. The platform was partially veiled in smoke, he noticed that Bosco, whose voice was back to normal, was looking vaguely in his direction, but not directly. Bosco had sheathed his machete, and the pen sword was back into a pen. Nathan looked down at his hands, which were shaking worse than before, even though he was still holding Bosco's big pistol. He cleared his throat and handed it back to Bosco. Bosco took it and handed Nathan Shiro's pen. Then, finally, Nathan looked around. One of the Gammy ships lay crooked and burning in the dip in the walkway, made from the Gammy turning so much of it into birds. That was where all the smoke was coming from. The other ship was still hovering, but had three bodies below it, laying in pools of blood. Two of them were alive and clutching stumps where one of their legs used to be. The third was missing a head. Nathan turned back toward the burning ship and noticed the two people who had been cut in half, but not cut in half, clutching themselves in fetal positions. Shaking, muttering. What did he do to them? Bosco sighed. I don't know. Should we help those guys with the legs gone? I doubt they will be left here alone for long. Bosco said. But if you insist, we can board the remaining ship and get it ready while I treat them. I'll be along shortly. Do you think they'll... Nathan began, but his question was answered by the sight of two black dots on the horizon, approaching them quickly. He scrambled toward the undamaged ship. Never mind, let's go.